Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. I think NIL kind of eased uh, the tension with kids thinking that they had to go make money to go to the, uh, the G League and that they couldn't go to college because it wasn't, you know, permitted, you know, at the time. But then the NIL coming into play, along with kids, you know, respecting me and the staff and what was going on here and the movement that was happening here in Memphis, that made it even better. You can come to college now and, and, and get deals for yourself and learn and develop at the same time. You don't have to go to uh, any other level to get that. That's University of Memphis men's basketball coach Penny Hardaway talking about name, image, and likeness rules, also known as NIL. One of the biggest changes to college athletics in a generation, NIL encompasses an athlete's name, appearance, signature, slogans, anything else used to identify them. Basically, it's their brand. With dozens of states recently passing legislation regarding how student athletes can capitalize on their own personal brands, the NCAA issued an interim policy regarding NIL that went into effect this summer. Since then, a number of NCAA athletes, including several at the University of Memphis, have struck deals that allow them to profit from their NIL. But what are the short and long-term implications in this rule change to college athletics? In this episode of Show Cause, we're joined by two individuals that can help explain the matter in more depth, both from a University of Memphis perspective and from the point of view pertaining to the NCAA and the legal landscape. Linda Black is an associate professor of law at the University of Memphis and serves as the faculty athletics representative to the NCAA for the U of M. Professor Black is also a Division I faculty athletics representative board member and has worked extensively on NIL issues. Also joining us is Dr. Adam Walker, the executive associate athletic director for administration at the University of Memphis. He chaired the U of M's NIL working group and committee that created the university's new NIL-related program, Maximum, which provides resources and helps to educate student-athletes on how to manage their own personal brands. Enjoy the show. This is Show Cause. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm really excited to get this off and running. We've uh, got a pretty exciting topic. I know both of you are really well versed in, and I just wanted to kind of get things going with uh, a broad overview of what NIL is. Um, kind of talk to me about um, the specifics of it, and then we'll kind of get into a little bit more depth from there. So um, I think most of our listeners are probably semi well-informed because this has been in the news quite a bit lately, but could one of you kind of just discuss a little bit about what is NIL name, image, and likeness. Um, and it's more than just a student athlete's brand. Um, so could you go into a little bit of detail of that before we go into the rest of the discussion? Yeah. So name, image, and likeness, um, really is, has come about recently for college athletes and that's due to the NCAA allowing student-athletes to be compensated for it. Um, Regular students have had the opportunity, whether it be a music student or another student, uh, to use their name, image, likeness for compensation. It was only specifically uh, prohibited for college student-athletes because of the NCAA. And 
as more and more states uh, passed state laws prohibiting the NCAA, the NCAA finally uh, turned over a leaf uh, June 30th, started July 1st, and allowed institutions and student-athletes to, to profit off their name, image, likeness. So now what we've got is a little bit of a patchwork of different state laws uh, between state to state, but the NCAA basically said two, two criteria. It can't be used pay for play, which means you can't say, uh, you know, ex-football player, I'm going to pay you $100 every time you, you score a touchdown. Uh, that's pay for play. And it can't be used for recruiting inducement to an institution or to keep a student athlete at an institution. So those are really the, the two areas. And then on top of that, they said you got to follow your state law. So NCAA really uh, opened the floodgates and really did not put any many boundaries uh, on the on the name of July. When and you talk, Ryan, Ryan if I could jump in and add um, a little bit of the history, because as Dr. Walker said, the specific issue of NIL is quite recent. Uh, the major changes in state legislation were taking place over the summer. The NCAA changed its position this past summer, but the roots of the problem, the, the issue, the history of the issue actually dates back uh, to about 2014. That's when there was the first lawsuit by uh, a former star basketball player named uh, Ed O'Bannon. Ed O'Bannon sued the NCAA for antitrust violations, basically claiming that the NCAA's stance on amateurism, which was this, as Dr. Walker said, this inability for student athletes to be paid while they're student athletes, that that violated uh, antitrust rules because it basically was an illegal restraint on trade. So that was where we really first started talking about it. That's where the seeds of all of this uh, started. Now, the, the issue back then in, in 2014, 2015, uh, this was out in California, um, a judge, Claudia Wilkin, with whom we've all become very familiar, uh, basically uh, said that the, that the NCAA did have to loosen up its restrictions with respect to payments to players. But at the time, the only issue was the players were allowed to receive some extra money over and above scholarship money uh, for cost of attending the institution. Uh, that line of thought then emerged uh, and took us up to where we are now, which was this past uh, summer with the Austin case where basically the Supreme Court affirmed what had been uh, said by Judge Wilkin, and that really opened the door. So we aren't, aren't now just looking at cost of attendance as payments, but instead uh, it opened the door for all of this state legislation that has said specifically that it is allowable for student athletes to monetize uh, their names, their images, and their likenesses. Yeah, that's great background. Thank you, Linda. So do you think that uh, the NCAA felt more pressure from the Supreme Court case or from the resulting state laws that were passed um, all across the country to kind of implement their interim policy? Well, I think the, the actual uh, clear motivator was the Florida state law because mm. Florida passed a law this past summer 
uh, that was set to take effect July 1, 2021. Uh, California was the first state to pass a law that their law was, uh, was not immediately effective. So they were kind of looking into the future. But when Florida came along and said, we're passing this law and it's going to be effective basically immediately, I think that uh, had to serve as a huge motivation uh, pretty much simultaneously with that, the Supreme Court opinion came down. Mm-hmm. So I think the two went hand in hand. So I'm curious. Um, I know that the Tennessee state law doesn't take effect, I believe, until July of 2022, if that's correct. Um, so while some of these state laws are still pending and the NCAA has their their interim policy, do some states have an advantage over others, depending on what how those state laws are written, or has does everyone have to abide by the NCAA interim policy um, in the meantime? That's a great point, Ryan. Um, actually, our state law is going to go into effect January first, twenty twenty-two. I spoke with our our uni- university council on this subject that it does vary from state to state, um, and. Thinking back, we, we, you know, in some ways, a lot of states were wanting to be proactive and have state laws, so it would allow them uh, to profit off the Navy's likeness for their student-athletes, where now in retrospect, some states who didn't pass the state law actually have more freedom and less restrictions because in play provided little guidance other than no pay-for-play, no recruiting inducements, oh, and follow your state law. So what we're finding now is there is a patchwork, for instance, in Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech was allowed to be included and basically broker a deal for an image likeness on behalf of their student athletes and the university, where in Tennessee and other states like Texas, we aren't allowed to be involved at all directly in any compensation uh, or that would cause compensation. So we're here to guide and educate. So that, that kind of limits in terms of us and what we can provide our student athletes. So you're already seeing an unlevel playing field uh, between colleges and states. Interesting. Um, so I'm kind of interested in how the process evolved here at the University of Memphis. Um, can you talk about each one of your roles in the process? And then um, this may be putting the cart before the horse a little, but then Dr. Walker, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the momentum program and specifically how, how that is tied into the university's efforts. So I know you were both really involved on the front end uh, about getting all of the groundwork laid out for the NIL stuff as it pertains to the University of Memphis. So if you talk a little bit about each of your roles and then um, how the university's taking advantage of things and what they're doing to help student athletes. Sure, Linda, why don't you go ahead? Sure, well, my role is much less significant uh, than Dr. Walker's role. So let me, let me just say what my role has been. As a professor at the law school, Uh, This is simply an area of uh, academic interest to me. So I have been following the name, image, and likeness uh, issue and and discussion in the court cases uh, for many years now. And so somewhat independently of my role as faculty athletics rep for the University of Memphis, I was keeping up with the uh, issue just for my own Uh, academic interest. And then I was invited uh, by uh, Dr. Walker and by our uh, athletics director to be part of our name, image, and likeness 
uh, working group. I think the University of Memphis was extremely proactive, uh, recognizing that this issue was on the horizon uh, pretty much a year in advance of the Austin decision. The University of Memphis had already formed a working group to discuss the uh, proposed and then an enacted Tennessee legislation and also just talking about uh, how we thought these issues were going to play out. So uh, I simply have been part of the working group, but the the main work, the heavy hitting, as you might say, uh, was really done by uh, Dr. Walker, who chaired that group uh, and who has worked with all of the different pieces within the University of Memphis, you know, with athletics itself, but then also working with compliance, also reaching out in terms of being able to form educational programs uh, with other arms of the university uh, and, of course, staying on top of everything that's going on, not only uh, in the state of Tennessee, uh, but in you know all of the states that surround us. So uh, Dr. Walker is is really the one uh, to give the insight uh, into what the University of Memphis has done. Yeah, thanks, Linda. Uh, you know, as, as Linda said, we we had a uh, council, and I was, uh, I guess luckier or <laughs> through the short straw, I'm chairing that about a year ago, and it involved many facets in terms of university and, and Linda was of course on there as our far and uh, legal representative and uh, we had compliance and marketing uh, our Learfield multimedia rights um, some of our other campus partners uh, but basically we, we knew this was coming we had to walk through it and that's where uh, we also interviewed several different companies that's in this space we ultimately landed with open doors uh, which is a leading company in the NIL space um, and they provide NIL for uh, many athletes across pro, uh, NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL. And so we felt like they were best positioned to help our student athletes. Um, so we partnered with them, and it's been a it's been a great partnership where our student athletes are able to connect with uh, whether it be fans, supporters, businesses, corporations, um, and it gives them an avenue where corporations can go onto open doors and solicit our student athletes for a deal. And they're allowed to review it and accept it uh, or decline it if they want to. So it also allows a great platform for them to report um, all their NIL as well. So we, you know, we rolled that into our maximum program, uh, which we launched, uh, you know, right before the July 1st date, and it's been terrific because it uh, encompasses the open doors as well as a lot of educational platforms. Uh, financial literacy, uh, some of the others that we have planned, and also helps us partner with campus as well. Sorry, I misspoke earlier when I called it uh, by a different name. So it's Maximum, um, just to be clear. You know, talking about the educational aspect, uh, Professor Black, um, I think you could maybe speak to this. So how do you think all the increased time spent on the student-athletes brand could could affect them? Um is there any concern that it could be detrimental to the educational side of things to have them spend so much extra time on their business side? Um, basically, what are some of the positives associated with their NIL, NIL utilization? Well, uh, you know, I think there are two sides to the coin. And certainly on uh, first glance, one might think because of the additional time and because of this uh newly opened pathway to 
monetize uh, one's one's brand, that student athletes would be short-term focused and would spend time uh, trying to make these uh, connections through open doors and spend too much time on social media. Although I guess maybe they already do that. Uh, But uh, but I am instead predicting uh, a different outcome. And, And this ties into the university's obligation to educate our student athletes. And one of the things that we are telling student athletes as we educate them is that uh, in order for their brand to improve, in order, uh, you know, as they build their brand and to make themselves more valuable in the NIL space, they need to be playing and competing. They need to uh, be at functioning at their highest level as a student athlete in order to have that exposure, which then in turn builds their brand. Well, in order to compete, you have to remain eligible. And in order to remain eligible, you have to satisfy the academic guidelines uh, of the NCAA and the University of Memphis. And so something that's very fundamental to the NIL conversation is that the academic requirements on student athletes has not changed. So uh, the the quickest way to have zero NIL value is to become ineligible and not be able to compete uh, as a Memphis Tiger. So we have have tried to help the student athletes connect the dots, tried to show them that um, academic performance, that their role as a student is still fundamentally important. And if anything, it may be even more important because now the ability to monetize is dependent upon maintaining that academic eligibility. So I'm choosing to view it as a, as a nice uh, incentive. Uh, and, um, you know, so far we have not, we have not seen uh, any negative impact uh, from NIL. Interesting. So yeah. I'd add this too. I think Linda's you know, makes, makes a great point that there's more emphasis because there's more at stake. Um, I would also add, I believe, you know, when we, when we try to teach them how to be, you know, a, you know, a great, uh, you know, contributor after graduation, right. Being a good citizen, talking about these life skills, the financial literacy, uh, you know, you know, being presentable, marketable, professional, it now is a whole new meaning to them. So I do think while we always try to instill that, it's now much more concrete. There's examples. And now they, the light bulb almost kind of goes off. You see when you start talking to these student athletes about financial literacy and taxes and making sure you're marketable and, and um, professional, now they see it because they're going to see the real impact. If they're not, it's going to impact them directly, monetarily. I would say the only instance so far that I've seen um, – maybe a negative consequence of NIL. And, and I was at a college conference, college athletics conference, um, just here in the last couple of days. And a couple of administrators mentioned this. Is there's increased pressure now on these student athletes. So the star quarterback, you know, as the football teams, not only are they wanting to play well, it's now impacting them from so many different angles. So I do think there's a mental aspect, um, you know, in terms of, uh, of, just, of just more – more pressure on the student athletes. So I think that may, that could be a negative consequence 
of all the pressure that they've got to deal with this. So that's actually an uh, interesting point that I wanted to bring up. I'd kind of read a couple of little things about that, um, the mental health side. So from a topical standpoint, you know, we've seen recently Naomi Osaka pull out of several tennis tournaments because she needed a mental health break. Um, during the Olympics, you had several athletes, most notably the U.S. gymnasts, pull out for uh, mental health reasons and mental health break. Do you see um, or what are your thoughts on if you have a student athlete that needs to take a mental health break from their NIL associated duties, is that in any way a violation of those NIL endorsement deals? Is it a case by case basis? Um, I know it's a new and evolving thing, but it's interesting that you bring it up because it's, I think it's something that we're seeing more in the sports world. Um, and I'm curious how it carries over here. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I would say, you know, it's not a case by case basis. Um, and I was having this conversation just today. I said, you know, in some ways, it's good that we're not involved because, um, you know, we're not going to influence where there's less opportunity for us to have a negative impact or, um, you know, there's some plausible deniability in terms of, you know, why is such and such organization or, or fans causing compensation? We can say we're not involved. On the other hand, um, it, I, I just fear the worst case scenario of, the student athlete not being properly represented. So you're probably going to, unfortunately going to see it sometime somewhere where someone's going to take advantage of a student athlete and they're going to sign a bad deal or give away their NIL rights in, in perpetuity. And it's because they're not being represented. So there's two sides of that coin of us not being involved. Um, that, you know, in one instance it's good in terms of, you know, we're going to be hands off, but the other one, it's also, they, they lack resources. Uh, when they're yet that young too. So it's something that we've got to be able to educate to them in, in that regard. Linda? Yeah, I would add to that. Um, just, just the other day I was in uh, the football facility and uh, saw a handful of our student athletes. And as I just walked through the hall, I said, read your contracts, read your contracts. And they were all turning and sort of laughing at me. And and I said, no, I'm a contracts professor. I'm telling you, you have to read your contracts. So what, uh, what Adam has said is exactly the case. And it kind of just goes back to, you know, with opportunity comes responsibility. And given the way the Tennessee law is set up and, and the, the limitations on the University of Memphis in terms of playing any sort of active role uh, with NIL opportunities, you know, what we have to do is we have to educate. Uh, and of course, we, we are doing that. Uh, but then the responsibility ultimately falls on the shoulders of the individual student athlete. Uh, they understand that the university is limited uh, and so uh, in the role that we can play. And so it's, it is the student athlete's responsibility to know what rights am I giving up in return for this, this money now? And, um, I, you know, I believe Adam's right. There, there will be some unfortunate cases that will turn into learning opportunities for uh, everyone else. Um, but by the, you know, by the same token, I think that, that the whole NIL landscape can still be uh, a great motivator. But there are areas that student athletes have not had to fully function in the adult world 
previously, and now they have to. Um, and another one of those, just to kind of to drop in, is is with respect to personal income taxes. Uh, so it's it's clear that the money earned off of these NIL contracts is income taxable. And so while there's this privilege and while there's this opportunity, there is responsibility on the other end. Um, you have to report your income. So uh, I think it's a, a pretty quick learning curve for student athletes. Uh, but, you know, as, as Dr. Walker said, I think, I think there will be some unfortunate uh, cases that we hear about, and those will then turn into uh, very poignant learning opportunities. I think it sounds, it sounds like, you know, best case scenario that it does offer your student athletes a lot of opportunities to learn real world applicable skills outside of their area of study for when they go into the real world, whether they open up a business um, or continue with their, their marketing of their own brand. So I wanted to make, be clear on a point. If a student athlete wants to pr- pursue this avenue, are they required to go through a third-party agency um, or can they handle these matters themselves as um, like a business-to-business transaction between uh, the company that wants to have the endorsement and the student athlete themselves? Or do the, do the state laws stipulate that they need to go through um, one of the partner agencies that you've talked about that you try to funnel them to? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So they do not have to use our open doors platform um, it's voluntary for them to sign up, but it allows them to connect with other agencies. So they can do the contract or the deal outside of that third party. Uh, the only requirement by the state law is that the student athlete must report that NIL compensation on an annual basis. And we ask for them to do that in a timely fashion um, in, in that open doors app. So it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, actually struck contracted in open doors just has to be reported through there. Okay. I imagine there's, there's gotta be a strong um, desire on, on your part to have the student athletes follow all of the stipulations to a T since I assume that any violation falls back uh, on you all from an NCAA perspective, but also um, I guess from a, a criminal standpoint, if they violate the state law, that, that falls back on them. But if it also, violates an NCAA rule or infraction, then it falls back on the university. Is that correct? Yeah. Linda, you want to talk on that? Uh, yeah. The, the NCAA has taken somewhat of an ambiguous hands-off position in terms of uh, what they intend to do when it comes to enforcing uh you know, are looking to see if there are violations with respect to NIL. So uh, it, it does not sound as if the NCAA is going to be actively policing these. However, and I, and I think that goes back to what Dr. Walker said, there's such a patchwork of state laws that it would be virtually impossible for the NCAA um, to play the role, um, a, a true enforcement role the way they have played in the past. Um, But even with that being said, there is still the obligation on individual schools uh, to self-report various violations, not not, you know, this wasn't new with the NIL uh, legislation. This is this has been around forever. Schools are required to self-report various uh, violations. And certainly if you have a 
a, a player who has become ineligible for whatever reason, who has played. You know, there, there are all sorts of things that the schools have the obligation uh, to self-monitor and self-report. So I think in this area, things are a bit gray. Uh, I, I definitely think that, you know, this, this wraps in with our educational mission so that student athletes are made as aware as they possibly can be of what Tennessee law requires. Um, but I think it's going to be more uh, individual universities making sure the rules are followed uh, than it is going to be the NCAA as enforcer. And of course, that itself uh, opens the door to potentially some disparities from school to school. Um, so Dr. Walker, I would love uh, for you to jump in and uh, add to that or refine anything that I may have said a little outside the lines. No, I think that's, that's a great point. I think we're still filling this out every day. It seems like there's a new concept. Uh, and I think our state law was well written, but I think like anything else, there's a few instances where um, they maybe could have written a little bit better. Um, you know, I do like the fact that it's, it, it states fair market value. Um, there's, there's categories in terms of we can restrict the use of our logo. Um, there's also categories student athletes are prohibited from uh, being sponsored in, which is uh, gambling, adult entertainment, alcohol, uh, and tobacco. So there's, there's some guidelines there. Uh, but one of the that we're finding guidelines-wise is length of term. So in our state law, it said cannot extend past the student athlete's participation. Uh, but now as we're finding out, you know, who determines that? I mean, somebody may intend to be here five years, but we'll have to be here one year or, you know, vice versa. So there's there's obviously some things to work through in terms of, uh, you know, what we have to deal with the state law. And I think the sooner we can get to a, you know, one blanket federal um, or maybe into delay, probably doubtful the way they move, I think the better that we're all playing by the same set of rules. Interesting. You touched on several things in there that I, I was curious about as well in terms of what student athletes could endorse, what they can endorse, the, the length of their contracts, et cetera, and the, the logo uses especially because um, the, the extension there kind of, you know, they're a representative of the university. So those were interesting points I was wanting to talk about, too. So I think, you know, I kind of come in on the tail end of things and wrap things up. It's obviously evolving day to day. Like you said, it seems like it's changing the recruiting landscape across the board, especially in the larger, uh, the larger sports. So what do you think's next? Um, not only in, in Tennessee, where we're still waiting on the law, the state law to take effect, but across the board, I guess you're hopeful for a blanket, you know, federal or NCAA um, type of rule to follow. But, you know, what are the, what are the hot button items that you, you think are going to be addressed or that you think are going to, um, be utilized by different companies or student athletes as, as things unfold. Yeah. I, I, I think you hit on something in terms of the logo. I think that it is very interesting how institutions and states are interpreting that because that's something we really struggled with. And what we've really landed on is, you know, for anything merchandise they sell that goes through our collegiate licensing uh, company, CLC. So for instance, our, uh, you know, we have, businesses who sell our merchandise, they're licensed to sell our logo. Um, therefore, if a student athlete wants to 
work with that business that sells merchandise, they can co-brand. So you you're gonna you may start to see um, you already see it some institutions uh, t-shirts, jerseys with the name on the back, and then Memphis and our logo on the front. Um, that's that's gonna be that's good, that's gonna happen. And then also in terms of advertising or sponsorships, that goes through our multimedia rights, Learfield. So if a corporation has our rights to use our logo and wants to work with a student athlete, that's where you can get the co-branding. Um, but then you're also seeing the group licensing as well, Brander Group, some others, um, and we're in discussions with them as well, where it's an outside entity that would acquire our rights to use our marks, but then work with the student athletes separately and they'd be able to co-brand and use our logo uh, with the student athletes. And then we would get a royalty just like any other uh, normal royalty deal and then the student athletes get compensated through this third party. So that's what you're going to start to see. You're already seeing creative workarounds at Miami and BYU. Uh, a businessman uh, decided to put uh, walk-ons on scholarship. And so if you look at it, that's you know, essentially some could look at it as circumventing the 85 scholarship uh, roster limit for football. You know, what happens if you just have a booster or a business that compensates everybody that are, that are walk-ons? That would give an institution multiple scholarships in essence. Um, and I think what you're going to see is eventually it's going to go down that path where you'll have third parties of groups that want to uh, compensate student-athletes for their name, image, likeness. And it's really not a Title IX issue anymore if, if we're out of it. It's, it's a Title VII issue. It, it's, a, it's, it's an agreement. It's a business agreement that we technically, because of state law, can't be involved. So I think what you're going to see is this this get out of uh, the neat, the neat black and white lines. Um, and it's eventually going to create a point where they're going to have to have some additional, um, I guess, like possibly regulations and whatnot nationally. So I think it's going to get a little bit, quote unquote, out of hand before we'll see it to kind of, uh, you know, come back to the, to the mean, if you will. So that right. Well, I, I want to, I wanted to follow up real quick. I think this might be something that, that Professor Black would be able to answer. Um, what what if uh, a university has a an existing contractual relationship with a um, an exclusive, like say a bank, like this is the official bank of the University of Memphis, or they have a, a an agreement with a, a a drink or food company that is their you know, they purchase this solely for them for campus things. Um, and then you have a student athlete that goes out and signs an endorsement deal with somebody that the university does not have that contractual relationship with, whereas under normal circumstances, the university would not, you know, be a business partner with that entity because of a, some exclusive agreement. Um, do those two things butt heads? Does it put the university in some situation where they've violated their contract with, with that vendor or is the student athlete a standalone you know standalone relationship type thing it's almost like you got a bug in our department no, <laughs> now we you know those are some issues we've been working with working through the last several weeks um and what's great is you know we encourage whether it be agents or student athletes or businesses to contact us because we're here to try to make the best the best possible situation for our student athletes and for them while following the guidelines um and, and a lot of times, we, you know, student athletes or, or agents will ask us, you know, who are your your partners? Because we want to be good partners. And so, you know, we t we'll tell them, hey, here, 
you know, you can look, it's public, you can see who's supporting us in terms of whether it be Learfield or whatnot. And if they want to reach out to them because, you know, they want to do business with those supporting us, that's great. But by the same token, you know, we, we really landed on, you know, we can't be involved. And if this is their name and likeness, the student athlete has a right to partner with whom they want. Now, if it is a competing entity, the, the easy one, for instance, is we're a Nike school. Mm-hmm. So if, if a student athlete were to partner with an outside entity that's a competitor, a direct competitor, you can name many, mm-hmm. we would have to put guidelines on that in terms of it can't be worn during competition, can't be worn during practice, any official team activities. When you do a sponsorship, you can't Memphis, you can't mention Memphis or our logos. So there are a lot of guidelines there, but we can't preclude them from working with them. But we definitely can protect our brand and our contracts. Um, in that regard. Interesting. Um, so Ryan, something I wanted to to go back to when you were talking about where do you see things going, where mm-hmm. do you see things headed from here? Right. So in addition to all of the wrinkles uh, that Dr. Walker has discussed, um, and I agree with them all, I think we're going to be learning uh, more and more about uh, NIL in application over the next couple of years. But I think that the, there are some other legal issues that are going to continue to emerge that are not specifically NIL, but there are, there are outcroppings that are growing from this NIL issue. And so um, at this point, even though the, the opportunities to monetize have been, have, you know, been, those doors have been open for student athletes, we still do not have what's referred to as pay for play. Uh, we're still not in that landscape. And so we can say, yes, the, the classic definition of amateurism uh, that uh, the NCAA has relied upon, that's now gone. But we're not fully in the professional space either. We're existing in this somewhat in-between space where student athletes can monetize, but it has to be on fair market value of name and image and likeness. So this, they're not actually being paid to play or being paid to to sign with a particular school. Uh, But I think that that issue uh, is going to be pushed. And uh, the concurring opinion in the Austin case that came out uh, this summer, concurring opinion by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, uh, seemed to really ask a lot of questions much broader than the actual legal issues that were presented in Austin. And so the stage is sort of set to see well, just how much farther will we go toward uh, more of a pay-for-play type model? The other issue that goes right along with that, and it's it's currently uh, an issue, uh, is the question of whether student athletes are employees uh, of the institution. Uh, up until this point, uh, that issue has either been answered in the negative or the issue has sort of been punted uh, because the uh, NLRB just didn't feel like it had jurisdiction or reach uh, into uh, various uh, schools and universities. So that issue is, is now being pursued more. Uh, General Counsel for the NRL, NLRB uh, recently stated uh, that pretty much student athletes are employees and should be treated as employees of the university. So those are extra, in addition to sort of the antitrust issue that we were 
you know, we've lived through, uh, we're now really looking at, is there a possibility to uh, sort of completely end amateurism? And then also, uh, you know, is it possible that student athletes would be treated as employees? And historically, that has never been the case. Speaking of having bugs in the office, you've, you're just pulling the questions off my page here. So that nicely tied up my last question of how you thought it was going to change amateurism. Um, and I think I think you guys have given us a fascinating glimpse into this whole issue. Um, I'm going to I'm of the optimistic side where, like you said, I think this offers student athletes so many opportunities to educate themselves take advantage of the situation they're in both monetarily and from a knowledge level um, and build on that as they leave their, their the institutions they're at. So um, I hope we continue to see it go in that vein and be mutually beneficial for the, the student athletes, their families and the universities. So this has been exciting. I'm, I, I thank both of you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, is there anything else you want to bring up before we, we sign off here? Uh, just have to say, go Tigers. Go Tigers. I got it. Dr. Walker, thank you as well. Brian, thank you guys so much. Professor Black, appreciate it. Thank you both. Hope to uh, talk to you again sometime and follow up and have a great day. Go Tigers. <laughs>